Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Confirmation of what we knew a year ago, and that is that uh, Amazon is coming to South Africa. Amazon.com launching its online shopping service in South Africa next year. We were talking about this to take a lot last year, and they were looking a little bit nervous. They still don't make a profit, these guys. So we'll pick up on that with Paul Teron at Vestac. But first up this evening, uh, the explosives and fertilizer group Omnia announcing a new strategic partnership with a company from Sweden. Sweden, the place where Alfred Nobel invented dynamite. Going full circle for us this evening, Swedish-based Hypex Bio will buy a minority stake for an undisclosed amount of money in Omnia. Silen Gobelsami is the chief executive of Omnia. He's on the line to us on The Money Show this evening. Uh, Silen, what does this deal bring uh, to, to Omnia other than uh, a, a nice bit of international investment? Yeah, good evening, Bruce, and good evening to your listeners. Um, in essence, what we've been focusing on is, uh, you know, creating uh, innovative solutions for our customers that are sustainable and future-proof. So what this deal does for us, it uh, allows us to invest in a business that is uh, that has technology to produce explosives, you know, not using nitrogen. So that is a cleaner and a greener way of producing an explosion. It's better for the environment. It's uh, more sustainable for the future. And, um, you know, it will really be um, the first start of a different way to uh, to blast uh, in, in, in the coming years and decades. I, I did chuckle to myself because, of course, no matter how you do it, you still blow stuff up. You still break things. <laughs> you, still, you still tear through the earth to get to the minerals yeah. that we need. And, of yeah. course, it's an essential part of mining. It's interesting that these guys at Hypex Bio are a greener alternative. So in exchange for shares in Omnia, they bring the technology to Africa effectively, and you're able to use that technology. Do you see it becoming the primary technology you will use into the future, or is it a transition? Is there a, a just yeah. transition in explosives like we hope there will be in oil one day? Yeah. So, I mean, just to clarify that, I mean, what we're doing is we're buying a, a 10% odd stake in their business. Ah. So we're taking a minority stake in, in their business. And their technology is tested and proven in the Northern Hemisphere in much colder conditions. So the first start of our partnership uh, would be to take their technology into our joint venture in Canada and uh, and actually test and use that there. And I guess, you know, as we work together further and we explore um, the partnership further, we will then bring it into um, the Southern Hemisphere, you know, where we blast in much in much warmer and, um, and hotter conditions. In essence, the tra- transition, what it will do for us, it, you'll, you'll have a, a greener alternative uh, to, um, you know, to, to, to traditional explosive. You, you're probably aware that Omnia already uses uh, used oil in our explosives instead of clean new oil, and that is uh, better for the environment. It is uh, better for the, the the product itself. It's great for SMME, and uh, you know we're able to um, to uh, harness that used oil from communities and businesses around the mines. You know, so this is just the next step in the execution of our strategy. Um, it's aligned with our capital allocation and our capital deployment into greener, cleaner uh, technologies of the future. When do you think? I mean, again, I know timescales are difficult, but is it a five-year timescale by the time Africa gets to benefit from cleaner blasting activity, or is it something that happens sooner or later? 
No, we will we will start um, testing and doing R and D uh, almost immediately. And I think the uptake of it, uh, you know, will will vary. So there'll be certain applications where it uh, would be used immediately. But clearly in, in very large complex applications, there'll be a transition, exactly what you said. It would, it would take a, a number of years, um, you know, to, to, to move away from traditional explosives. I don't see us moving away immediately, you know, and it will, it would, it, it would, uh, you know, it's it's something that it's great for us to have researched and worked with Hypex Bio over the last while, um, you know, and got closer to them. Um, and it's just another one of our value propositions that we will have in our basket uh, for our customers. And as mines, you know, focus on ESG, focus on lower carbon emissions, not only will we have, um, you know, a, 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 a more uh, greener emulsion with used oil will now have eventually an alternative to that, um, which is um, which is really based on um, on hydrogen peroxide. So it's a you know it's a different way of of doing a blast that's cleaner. Sealand uh, Gobalsami, thank you very much indeed. Don't stand too close. We have orange hair if that hydrogen peroxide gets anywhere near you. Chief Executive at Omnia. On the line to us from London. Good markets, which were disappointing around the world today. Uh, Wayne McCurry from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank joins us on the line to us from Johannesburg this evening. Uh, Wayne, what scared markets today? Because practically everywhere we saw people running for the hills. Is it the reality that this conflict in Gaza is not going to go away anytime soon and could very well spill over to other parts of the world? I think it is obviously a concern to the markets, Bruce, but there had been, you know, certainly the U.S. markets had a very strong day yesterday. So, you know, some weakness is not that untoward, but clearly there is some concern about the escalation of the war. And any conflict like this is never good news for markets because you don't know what the future brings. It just brings another uncertainty, you know, onto the table. Uh, absolutely. And that uncertainty, of course, is plaguing markets everywhere. That uncertainty is something that uh, with which we're going to have to deal. Uh, for now, markets are looking at this and the, the knock on effects. And I think it was, uh, it was the JP Morgan chief executive just saying, look, all of this uncertainty just adds to the pressures on pricing. It adds to food, yes. food prices. It adds to fuel prices. It therefore adds to inflation. And while it might not lead to another spike in interest rates, it certainly is going to mean that, you know, for at least the foreseeable future, there's no way that any central bank anywhere with its head screwed on properly can start cutting interest rates. No. And interest rate cuts are coming. I mean, we've spoken about this many times, but it's maybe a little bit further pushed out now because of this. But, you know, there's quite a bit of uncertainty around. There's two wars going on now. And, you know, all of this uncertainty doesn't help markets. The one I suppose mitigating factor is that global markets are not massively overvalued at the moment. Uh, they're not overvalued, but the thing is, they can get massively more undervalued. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they can they can fall a lot more from an overvalued situation than what they can fall from. Let's call it a fair value situation. Now, today, we don't get any declarations of money and what um, money is changing hands. We do get the sense today from uh, the explosives maker Omnia and fertilizer maker, they taking a 10% stake in a Swedish greener explosives maker. That greener explosives maker is also taking a stake in the South African business of Omnia and its explosives business. It's, it's not huge, I don't think, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's nice to just get a little bit of interest in South African companies coming from offshore again. 
Yes, very much so. I mean, South African assets are cheap. They're just cheap. And if you can, if you're an overseas investor and you take a longer term view and you want to maybe get a foothold in Africa via South Africa, you can buy cheap assets with a massively oversold rand. I mean, that might turn out to be a very good investment over the next 10, 20 years. Absolutely. And the RAND showing some uh, promising signs of improvement, at least as far as this week is concerned, which is mm. nice today. Amazon, it's not never going to dent Naspers, of course, but it is going to take on Take-A-Lot. Take-A-Lot struggling yep. in this market. Every other retailer on the JSEs, on the JSE is also struggling at the moment. It's going to make everybody's lives a bit more difficult and perhaps just bring a little bit of much needed and wanted competition into the South African environment. I think you're, you're correct, the boost, because it's going to take them a while to get established and get going, but it will be competitive. I mean, make no mistake, there's a lot of very, very good people in this space in South Africa already. I mean, take a lot, it's got a big footprint. And when you look at all the other retailers, you know, especially checkers, you know, they do online very, very well with a very wide product range. But of course, Amazon is the king. As I said, I don't think you'll see an immediate effect, even even when they open next year. But on the two to three year view, when they get established and get their, their distribution going properly and get their product offering expanded and expanded and expanded, it, it is going to give serious competition. And that, of course, is good for the consumer. Absolutely. Wayne McCurry, thank you. He is with Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. Chris Yellen, the energy analyst, will join us shortly. Your municipality is really going to have to box a lot smarter if it wants to make money out of you into the future already. I mean, they're running out of creative ways of sucking money out of you. The city of Joburg has got many confused by the valuations that the city assumes is on their properties. I mean, the, the disparity between valuations that the municipality says your house is worth versus what somebody's prepared to pay for it. And there is a gap, a very significant gap. Um, and the gap that is the reality is not keeping up with the inflation that the city of Johannesburg is putting on your rates bill, for example. The other favorite way for municipalities to raise revenue from you, the biggest cash cow, is from the markup they put on electricity. They buy electricity from ESCOM. They then put it through the city network, and it comes to you, and you pay you know, a, a good premium, probably more than twice the going rate, on to the municipality. So they get a big fat check from you every single month because you pay for your electricity, of course. Municipal purchases of electricity, however, in the first six months of this year, decreased by nearly 1% compared to the first six months of 2022. That may not seem like very much, but it's the beginning of a new trend. Five metros recorded a decline in electricity sales. Now, part of this is due to the fact that there's been so much load shedding that they've been selling less electricity. Uh, But there's also not the demand that's coming through as a result of a weak economy. But there's also the issue of solar PV doubling year on year and likely to double again this time next year compared to right now. Nelson Mandela Bay sold 15% less electricity. City of Joburg, 10% less. Buffalo City, 6% less. Tswane, 2% less. City of Cape Town, 1% less. Uh, The City of Cape Town, of course, is a beneficiary of semigration. So you might have expected greater consumption of electricity, but there are so many solar companies that operate in Cape Town putting solar panels onto any surface that will allow it. Chris Yellen, the energy analyst and managing director at EE Business Intelligence. For, for cities, for metros, this is a huge problem, Chris Yellen, over time, because as we become less and less dependent on the electricity that is generated by ESCOM and is distributed by our cities, 
They're going to find new, have to find new ways of generating revenue because they do rip the ring out of electricity. Well, yes, uh, all businesses have to uh, reinvent themselves in the face of changing circumstances, changing technologies. Uh, and I'm sure if companies like uh, ESCOM and municipal electricity distributors, which are in a sense businesses, uh, have to likewise um, look carefully at their business processes and models uh, and adapt to these changes. That's what, uh, that's what we have to do. Uh, but just to say that just because there's a decline in revenue doesn't mean to say there's a decline in uh, net revenue or surplus. Because remember, if there's a decline in sales volumes and kilowatt hours, uh, and that's what we should be looking at, um, there is also a decline uh, by the municipalities in their purchases of electricity from Eskom. About 70% of the cost of the electricity distributor are the costs of electricity from from Eskom. So if they are declining in sales volumes, they will also be declining in their purchases from Eskom. Uh, so things are getting cheaper uh, for them, uh, lower costs uh, because of declining revenue. So things are not as bad as they seem. And as you okay. pointed out, there, there are other issues like the declining economy. I think to put this in the, in the, in the line of, of renewable energy, is stretching it. Okay. So, I mean, the, really the biggest loser here is ESCOM, which is unable to supply an uninterrupted power supply. Um, and it's, you know, it, it will eventually be the conduit or one of its businesses will be the conduit for electricity from wherever it is generated in the Karoo or by the wind farms in the Eastern Cape or wherever those might be. But ESCOM is ultimately, at least in the short term, the biggest loser here because we're all looking for alternatives to what they cannot provide. Well, again, I don't think they are the losers at this point in time because they don't have enough electricity to meet demand. Uh, we have load shedding as we speak. In fact, I'm sitting in the dark right here, except for my battery. Um, so the point is that declining sales for Eskom means less pressure or less burden, uh, which they currently are unable to meet. So... Um, uh, I just, I'm just saying that if the environment was such that there was no load shedding, uh, then this would definitely be hurting Eskom's bottom line. Uh, but uh, they are constantly urging us to use less electricity. That's what they urge us to do. Shut down this, shut down that, yeah. don't use electricity. So I, I don't think uh, <laughs> uh, our uh, solar PV systems that are helping us are hurting Eskom right now. They're actually helping Eskom right now. They're helping Eskom do what Eskom asked us to do, reduce yeah. demand for electricity. No, exactly right. Um, a little bit of news coming through last night. Uh, one of the new, one of the generators that should have been ready 12 years ago came on stream last, uh, last night, a month ahead of the, the replanned, renewed, renewed, renewed deadline schedule. Um, and, and government is beginning to talk up a, a, a better summer than perhaps we may have been expecting six or seven weeks ago. Um, with the, with, the, with the work that has been done to renew and refurbish and repair uh, dysfunctional power stations. How optimistic are you that this summer is better than the January to April summer that we endured this year? Yeah, I, I think it is. Uh, this, these uh, generators that are coming back on stream um, are, in fact, going to relieve the pressure of load shedding, uh, reducing its severity and intensity and level. Uh, so I think as we move 
towards December, uh, and we get all three units back. Remember, though, that these are not new generation capacity. These are the return to service of previously operating generators that broke down something like more than a year ago. And yes, we are very thankful that they're coming on stream and coming on stream uh, perhaps a month earlier than was initially told uh, to us. Uh, but remember, this is a return to service after a year's failure. Exactly. Uh, so we, 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 we kind of getting back to where we should have been a year ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, the new generation capacity, that is unit number five, and you get number six at Kusili Power Station. Well, unit number five is only going to uh, be synchronized at the end, uh, you know, sometime in December this year, which means it'll only be delivering commercial service in about June next year. And the unit number six will only be delivering commercial, you know, be returned oh, to uh, commercial service in February 2025. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, look we know that these 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 power stations were incredibly badly built. We know that they were fraught with problems. Do we know that the repairs are more than simply bubblegum and sticky tape patch-up jobs? Are they doing the well, job properly? What no, sort no. of insight do you have into that? Now, they are bubblegum uh, sticky tape jobs because these three that are coming back are just the temporary solution, uh. the sticky tape and bubblegum solution. The real solution has still got to come later. So in due course, these three units that are coming back on stream will be shut down again whilst they do the real solution. This is just a temporary fix for which they have a temporary generating permission from the Department of Forestry and Fisheries and Environment. They are technically breaking the law, uh, the environmental laws by operating, but they have got a, an exemption from the law for a limited period of time uh, whilst the real, the real solution is put in place. So they are temporary. Thank you very much. Chris Yelland, Energy Analyst and MD at EE Business Intelligence. Jonathan Holden is the Chief Operating Officer at Soul Shop. Uh, talk to me about Soul Shop, Jonathan, because it looks like what you're trying to do is you're going into communities where there are people growing cabbages and lettuces who may very well have a certified butchery or a dairy on site, and you're trying to connect these people with markets. Explain what you are up to, please. Evening, Bruce. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, Soul, make, uh, Soul Shop started... Um, a little over a year ago in, in earnest, obviously lots of work behind the scenes before we launched. But what we were trying to do is firstly bring the concept of group buying to the South African market. It doesn't really exist, although um, obviously we're all very familiar with the, the stock fell concept. And I think, I think one of the driving forces was the understanding that South African consumers, at least, um, you know, in the lower income brackets, have have a propensity to buy in bulk or buy it together. So we thought, well, what an opportunity to um, digitalize that way of thinking and allow people to buy online uh, through their cell phones with their friends or even with perfect strangers and get access to bulk goods at, at real wholesale prices. So that, that was the starting point. But we, we saw a further opportunity in that there are so many small producers and small farmers who struggle to get their goods to market um, at a fair price for themselves. Um, and obviously, we're all familiar with the many layers of intermediaries that there are in getting the goods eventually to your 
shelf in Woolies or Checkers or wherever it may be. Um, so there's a huge opportunity to cut costs out of that supply chain yeah. and link customers directly to these small producers, perhaps even bigger producers in time. But that was the concept. And then, you know, what that does is allow smaller producers to sell their goods at a higher price. It makes it viable for them. Uh, but even in that scenario, the cost to the end consumer is still way, way less than they would be how, able to get on the store shelves. I'm, I'm curious as to how practically it will work, Jonathan, because for me to be part of a, a group buying sort of idea, I've got to be big enough. I've got to get together with my street or at least with five people in my suburb or whatever to make it worthwhile for this bulk buying to happen. Abelobi's had some success in connecting fishing communities with the restaurant trade, for example, and cutting out the middleman there. They've been recognized by uh, the Prince of Wales, who um, has put them on a short list of a potential award in terms of uh, greening the oceans and making things better from a, from an ocean perspective and helping fish communities this is a great way for local farming communities to get access to market but when it comes to the transaction point of view is it aimed at sort of business to consumer or is it business to business so if i've got a network of spaza shops in a township for example i can benefit from this hugely because i get direct access to the producer i no longer have to go through the wholesaler that's good for me doesn't necessarily mean my consumer is going to benefit though that's a good point uh we, you know, ideally we're not at this point anyway. Um, we see it as a different type of model, but we're targeting uh, the end consumer because ultimately with a, with a model such as ours, which is um, some people refer to it as social e-commerce, yeah. um, the idea is for it to become viral. Um, and the only way you're going to get literally millions of customers is um, through obviously awareness and your usual marketing channels, but, but more importantly, word of mouth. So you, Bruce, if you sign up and you see that there's a special on potatoes, for example, and you need 10 people to buy that, you can purchase the goods and wait and see if nine other people join you, or you can send a link to nine of your friends and they can all join and you can close that group. So there's, there's various ways of spreading the word. You can share your link, your own personal link with friends um, so that you, you know, get recognized for starting that group. Um, but that really the concept is around word of mouth, um, getting people talking, spreading uh, the word. Absolutely. Um, and that also... How how are you working it? Because, I mean, you've been in pilot phase for the last year or so. You've got the tech sorted up, and that's fine. You've got farmers producing. You've got consumers wanting to consume. There's that tricky bit from farm to table, however. And, and in fresh, it's the hardest connection of all. Because, unfortunately, once you pull a carrot out the ground, it starts rotting. <laughs> There's a limited amount of time for, it, for its appeal to hold. How do you ensure the, the security of the supply chain? Again, a great point. And fresh produce is is a tricky game in the online space. So obviously your non-perishables, um, far easier to build logistics around those sort of things. So the key is to um, have very intimate deals with the end producers and make sure that you know exactly when the next batch of stock is coming out the ground and that you promise them you'll be there to collect it 
and then and then we try and get it to the end customer within yeah. probably a maximum of two days. So we're not we're not trying to deliver within a within an hour. Um, we have to be reasonable about this, but we think you know within two days from from the ground to the consumer is what we're aiming for. Uh, look, you've got many, many mountains to climb on this, but it's really exciting and it's wonderful to hear the innovation behind it. Jonathan Holden, thank you. Jonathan Holden, of course, is the Chief Operating Officer at Soul Shop, launching on the same day as Amazon.com announces. Hey, there's no flies in these guys. Uh, it's entry into South Africa in 2024. There's like a pincer movement from the top of retail and the bottom of retail, and the guys in the middle are gonna, no doubt going to be squeezed a little the advertising industry gets so excited about the luries. It's where they go to pat each other on the back and clap for each other and give each other awards. And industries need that. Industries need awards announcements. Most awards are really quite boring. The advertising industry's awards, however, are, should be joyful and uplifting and celebrating the very best in efficacy and talent and skill and storytelling and selling. I wonder if it was like that. Oresti Patricia, Chief Executive at Ornico Group, because... Ideally, that's what the Lurie should be. Um, was it like that this year? Yeah, well, I didn't go uh, this year, so I can't say, but I thought let's bring this whole thing up because there's always so much controversy around awards. Does it work? Does it not work? Should we have it? Should we not have it? And I thought it would be a really cool conversation to have. And, I mean, I was reading the creative review, the UK creative review, and they <laughs> mentioned a really interesting point. He says... Um, they said all anyone needs to know about prizes is that Mozart never won one. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, it kind of, um, you know, so th 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 there's still that debate. And I do think, I, I must say, though, from an advertising perspective, um, these awards do give a little bit, specifically for the agency and the brand, it gives it a little bit of an edge. It helps us as an industry discover, I think, new, fresh ideas um, especially to a jaded consumer. I mean, we looking at ads consistently um, yeah, as consumers, and I think we are jaded. So kind of giving it that, that little bit of an edge, um, I think is, is, is really cool. But also for the agency, for, um, the brand, uh, it gives a bit of a moral booster. Um, it's a metric of success, I suppose, because you when, when a brand decides to choose which agency, the agency that has won more awards is, is is the one that probably would get chosen, not necessarily always, because strategic um, positioning is also important. But I also I, I saw a research done by uh, Peter Field and Liz Bind in 2007, and they did a study and said that those um, brands that actually win awards are 11 times more effective at delivering business success um, and success such as sales, sh um, share increases, profit, or loyalty. Um, but I'm sure that's not just the only factor. I mean, obviously, how they run their businesses must be just as important. So, yeah, I think Creative Awards is kind of, is really cool. It does create excitement and buzz. Um, but I suppose efficacy and effectiveness awards is just as important, not just Creative Awards. 
Absolutely. I mean, and I, how do you measure efficacy? I was talking to somebody who is aware of the ad spend in industry. They're aware of how it works. And there's one particular company that spends millions of rands every month on advertising. And they advertise everywhere. And they, they, they're prolific. And the story comes that they're not quite sure what does and doesn't work. And they're too scared to cut a million here and a cut a million there in case they cut the million that actually works. So they just keep bombarding all of the channels which is great as recipients of media of of, of media advertising of course um, but it's also um, one of those things where you know do we really know yet what works because it was Ogilvy who said wasn't it that we don't know which bits work and which bits don't yeah I think it's uh, it's attributed to Ogilvy but I believe it was somebody else at Elton today but it's irrelevant you're right we never know which advertising works and which doesn't um, at the end of the day but I think I think you can measure certain certain things. I mean, and I think if you if you set a particular goal um, w- within your advertising, and let's just presume that you're going to actually the goal will be to get into um, a cons- when you're researching consumers that the that, that the recall is higher than it was in uh, before. Then I-, I think when you're aligning it to certain key objectives that are smart and measurable, I think then you can measure the the effectiveness of a particular um, of a particular campaign or ads or a bunch of ads anyway. And I mean, as far as the awards went, any controversies? Not that I saw, Bruce. To be honest with you, I mean, I think um, not like last year. I mean, last year there was a lot of controversies. I didn't see too much that went around this way. It seemed to have worked. Um, kind of smoothly, but because I wasn't there this year, I mean, because I wasn't there, I just didn't, I, I, I didn't feel it as much as when you are actually there. So no, I didn't pick anything up. Okay, okay. Well, we, we, we like controversy. We're going to send you next year just to get the goss. Get the goss. That's what we need. Now, you're zeroed this Ooh, week. Prime Media is paying for it. Uh, no, no, no. You're, you're an industry professional. They'd be gagging for you to go there. We, we, we don't pay for anything. Really, we don't. We'll be there. Um, <laughs> Burger King. Talk to me about Burger King and why get to a zero this week. Yeah. I mean, Bruce, I mean, at the end of the day, you will know that's Burger King. Firstly, that you could put any any brand or any logo at the end of that um, at the end of the at the end of that um, advert. I mean, you it opens up just to give the the listeners something um, to kind of understand what's happening. But it opens up with this guy looking for his car, like we always do. Uh, not always, like we sometimes do, is that we park our vehicle somewhere and we get lost. We're not sure always, which yes, level we always. park it. Yeah. <laughs> um, showing your age, Bruce. I was showing my age as well, and I decided to backstep. Um, I've so, got a cousin. I've, no, yeah. just, sorry, sorry to di- just digress for a moment. I've got a cousin who was a young man. I think he was eighteen. He just got his driver's license. He came from the farm to the big city in the days when there was a, a, an ice rink on the top of the Carlton Centre. Um, he came in and followed his father's advice. He made a note of the bay number, the, a note of the floor level, and he left the car park, went jawling around the Joburg city centre as, as he did in those days. And lost the car park completely. He spent he spent about seven hours trying to find the garage he'd parked in. Never mind the floor or anything. So, and he was young at those times, and that was before he bumped his head. So, um, it it was um, yeah. So these things are not yeah. age uh, age specific. Age specific. Okay, okay. Um, good. Thank goodness for that. Because I was <laughs> thinking I'm losing my car more often than normal. No, no, not at all. Uh, so, 
you have this guy actually looking for his car, not sure which which floor it is at. Um, and it doesn't really, for me, it doesn't associate. Um, what they're trying to do is associate small pleasures um, with finding your car. Makes no sense to me. Um, at the end of the day. So this doesn't align to the brand. It doesn't align to its values. It doesn't align to any of the products. None of those. It actually, for me, looking at that ad, and I looked at it a number of times, actually um, is off the mark completely. And, I'm, you know, when you're placing ads, your most in, most expensive part of the media spend is placing it on specifically television. Um, so if you are going to experience and Spend money on television. Make sure that you get it right. And I felt that um, they didn't get it right at all. Um, and yeah, therefore the zero. You mean that you're in the burger and chips business? Tell us, tell us burger and chips. Tell us why we must buy your burger and chips and not one of many millions of others. The one that you did like, and this is lovely tear jerking goosebumpsy stuff. Let me play it quickly and let's see if anybody can guess where this one comes from. I watched, I watched, I watched, and I said, "What on earth is this one all about?" And finally, the penny dropped. Hardman. Big man. You went to the shop to get something. Underpants. I didn't want to no, no, no. That's the Burger King one. I don't know what it's doing there. <laughs> I didn't know we were playing it. We're not playing that one. We're playing the other one, Umdu. The good one. The nice one. The one that says we're playing it. It's voice. spectacular uh, and i think that's checkers 6060 not that it matters because it's just such a wonderful wonderful enthralling uplifting piece of work uh work there Risty. yeah i decided to choose it i mean the, i think checkers 6060 got it got it so right i mean they've picked that the pulse of the nation uh, after that fantastic win um, although this ad was done a little bit before it was done on the 10th of um, 10th of October, so it was just before um, the the the, the game yeah. on on Sunday. But I think you could feel the energy of South Africa building up to that particular game, um, and 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 the pulse of the whole nation. And I think that's that that's one of the reasons why I really um, enjoyed that ad, and I thought I'll give it a, a hero. But also, I think that's an absolutely beautiful rendition of Mkosi Sikaleli. Oh. And I mean, sometimes you hear some of those renditions and they're horrendous. I think that, that, that vocalist is, is so cute. He's got the most incredible voice. Um, his expression on his face while he's singing <laughs> um, the national anthem is unbelievable. And it just draws you into this, into this ad. And because it's a social, a, a place for social media, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to keep it at 30 seconds or 10 seconds. I mean, it, it was a two and a half minute. Um, rendition of uh, of our national anthem, and I really thought that it built. 
I mean, why do you advertise? I often say you advertise to build, um, to build, to, to get sales. But I mean, you need, what was this? It's, it's really to build that affinity. And affinity is about getting, aligning yourself with customer values, with a customer philosophy and building that emotional connection to the brand. And I think this ad did it beautifully. I think most people who watch it will get absolute cold shivers, um, watching this ad. And I think it's, um, brilliant at the time and, 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 and again time, it's yeah. it's living the it's living the brand but it's also buying into the zeitgeist i mean we've got people who are piggybacking off the spring box and who are really doing it in a cheap and nasty fashion and they don't deserve our support they really don't but when you're spending big bucks on big sponsorship you've really got to leverage it to the fullest extent and i think they're doing that thank you oresti patricia's chief executive at ornico group hero goes to check at 6060 with possibly the most beautiful rendition we've heard in a very very long time. I can't think of one I prefer. Um, of, of course, Isikadele and the Burger King ad, which I didn't know we had, but apparently it was awful. Good thing we didn't play it. Uh, and of course, it was all about the Luris. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. In the flesh, Victor Homoswana with the Africa Business Report in a Lumo tracksuit. Very <laughs> impressive. Hey, it makes you look 50 years younger. You didn't tell me you were moving, Bruce. Hey, I, no, 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 no. I'm just moving and shaking all the time. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, Victor, absolutely. Beautiful. Now, listen, um, talk to me about Ethiopia. Uh, it struck me as really astonishing that Ukraine was, within a couple of months of the Russian invasion, able to begin, resume exports of electricity to European customers um, and that it, it was doing that. Ethiopia... Um, is also exporting electricity, something, I mean, I don't know if you yep. can put it in line quickly, but we don't have enough and they've got excess. Ethiopia Electric, I mean, if we had their utility, power utility, which already exported, Bruce, last year, 1,700 gigawatts to Sudan, to Kenya, I can't remember the third one, might be Djibouti, and they want to go closer to the 300 and then three three thousand gigawatts type of export. This not three thousand. What did I say? Uh, seventeen hundred. They want to get yeah. 2,000 2, gigawatts. Yeah. But they want to add Tanzania. And and the reason they are able to do that, Bruce, is because of that Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which they built on the River Nile, and that supposedly was supposed to cause World War Three in that Nile River basin, but it didn't. Yeah. And even as this going back and forth between Ethiopia and and, and, and Egypt and Sudan, they are, they are saying we are continuing with this. We are filling the dam, but most of all, we are exporting. That's why they did. They are gunning for 6,000 megawatts, and they are wanting to keep on exporting and exporting to the rest of the region because they don't, they don't need that much in Ethiopia. Have they done a better deal than we did on ETOLs, for example, <laughs> in terms of actually Ethiopia getting a benefit out of the, you know, the oh, fact that you know, we've got the foreign companies who come in, you've got the private equity players who come in, they put in billions of dollars, they need their return, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, no. At the same time, Ethiopia's got to get its share. No, here's the beauty of that. It was a four billion. I think they raised over three billion dollars from the Ethiopians themselves. If you want to talk about crowdfunding, there's an example. They went into the villages, they went into the towns, and they raised fifty dollars here, hundred dollars there. They went to the Ethiopians in diaspora, and that's how they financed it. Because the World Bank wasn't going to finance it due to the fact that the environmental impact assessment was not favoring the development. So Mel Zinawi said in 2011, we are going ahead, whether you like it or not, because that 1929 Nile River Basin Accord was a British deal. It wasn't out. We've, we've heard so many stories. I mean, the 
turnaround in South Korea was funded by citizens. People would sell their jewelry because they believed in the vision. Exactly. So interesting that Ethiopians are prepared to put their money behind a government vision. I wonder how much success we would have as South Africa. If right now? We, if we, yeah, exactly. If, if we said, all right, in the interests of, 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 of solidarity and a national pride, we're going to restore, I don't know, pick one, the post office, South African Airways, I mean, any one of the thousands of things that need money, and go to the villages and ask for money. I, I've got a feeling that we might not be as giving. I would, I would be the commentator that I am and just stand and watch. I yeah. doubt right now South Africans would. And it's a sad thing, isn't it, Bruce? Yeah. Because no, we, we should be able to rally, but we haven't been given enough reason by the powers that be that if you put money into a cause, it will be directed or channeled accordingly. And that's the only problem. With Melis Denawi, Ethiopians said, we know it's the world against Ethiopia or Ethiopia against the world. If we don't do it ourselves, we have nothing. So they went ahead and more than 50% of what they needed, they raised. And that's why they went ahead and built the dam anyway and started filling it. They are still talking to mm. Egypt, but they're saying we're filling the dam in the meantime. And whoops, we are already exporting 1,700 gigawatts. Brilliant. Um, and then Aliko Dangote, Africa's richest man by a country mile. He's made his fortune out of cement and out of food and out of everything else. Is big in the private equity space now, using his money for good, I hope. Yeah, and he's going to make money out of oil refinery. You remember the refinery? Of course. The installing, but when you're building a mega mega refinery in Nigeria, you're going to take a while and you're going to miss some of the deadlines. This time, is it's actually based here in South Africa, this Altera equity, private equity fund run by, well, it was set up by former Carlisle executives, including a, a Mombasa-born lady called Genevieve. She's about 46, Genevieve Sangundi or something. She is, they, they are saying they want to raise $500 million, but they are now at just over 100, 150, because they believe that with the intra-Africa trade that's happening, the fact that COVID taught us the importance of ICT, they are going to invest in logistics, they are going to invest in ICT, they are going to invest in those sectors that will ride on the wave of this intra-Africa trade increasing on the back of the intra-Africa trade that, that we, I mean, African continental free trade. Again, you know, the, the private money that will go into facilitating and making it a reality. Governments can can get the policy right and get yeah. the, can open the borders, but it's going to be private money that gets the, uh, gets the, the rails laid, if you like, and the trains moving or however and, we get stuff and maybe our politicians will be more accountable that's the beauty of private sector investment bruce remember they are having them <laughs> no they can make if you're with dangote man you can make the terms absolutely no i think i think you're absolutely right yeah. um nigeria how do you get a zero interest world bank loan because the moment i see that i go okay what's yeah. the catch i mean they're nice enough people i'm sure yeah but really? Yes. They, they get it. Remember, the World Bank Group has different agencies. So they have the Inter International Finance Corporation, the IFC, which is about promoting private sector investment in developing countries. That is when you are you're private sector led. But there's also the International Development Association, which is for lending to poorest countries. So within the same group, the Bretton Woods Institutes are saying institutions are saying you know china can take over this debtors book in africa and leave us out of a game so when they were in marrakesh what is it uh, marrakesh 
in Morocco, they mm-hmm. decided, among other things, to look at countries that need that short-term funding, but they might not be in a good position to borrow from the rest of the world. And said, it's almost like, Bruce, your banker realizes that you're beginning to get loans from other sources. <laughs> and they say, wait a minute, we want your business. That's the catch. They, there's really no catch. Nigeria's already got, what, $42 billion in debt. Its inflation is over 25%. It's... And, and now they're just adding a billion. And that, that, that debt level has been going up almost by a billion every quarter. So it's, it, the catch might be that it's going to be over-indebted very, very soon. And, by the way, the World Bank and IMF reckon South Africa will topple them again and become the largest economy in Africa. Uh, by I, a mere $6 billion. Yeah, no, look, I mean, again, so. I, I don't believe that size counts in this, re, in the, certainly really? in, the, in this respect. Who cares who the biggest economy is? We we want a fast-growing economy. We want an efficient economy. And we want an economy that creates hope and optimism. And, and uh, lights. And, well, the lights is the first step towards creating hope and optimism. Uh, you know, just chatting to colleagues again today and people saying, well, I have to leave work early because otherwise I don't have supper tonight. And you've got to get through the traffic because the load shedding was happening here and then it was going to be happening at their house. Uh, and so they've got to you know, duck and dive and dodge and get through. And it's just... It's that energy-sapping, soul-destroying nature of load shedding where... I can handle the traffic. It's the cut-in communication that I can't handle. Because you're calling somebody, the signal goes, you're on an online meeting, the signal gets cut. You never know whether you can, without traveling, be able to meet as we thought we could during the COVID lockdown. Absolutely. Victor Homaswana, Africa Business Report. He is the author of a fabulous book, Africa Bounces Back. Is the narrative still holding? Def, are you? Is that a trick question? Hey, no, no, I'm asking. Africa bounces back. We're talking are, about Ethiopia exporting exactly. power, even when we are in the dark here. No, no, but that's Ethiopia. That's Nigeria. It's Africa. South Africa growing. It's all the other. 48 countries that we need to get onto this growth path too. But that's what I suppose, you know, the, the Africa Free Trade Agreement is all about. None of this stuff happens overnight, unfortunately. Precisely, precisely. Victor Homoswana, lovely to see you. Uh, don't go anywhere. We need to talk. Um, and uh, Victor Homoswana joins us regularly talking all about uh, the African continent. Also standing by in studio for us this evening, Director at Rand Swiss, Gary Boyson, technical analysis. Um, we got a wonderful uh, connection from a listener who said, I want... To learn more about technical analysis, please could you get somebody to help us out? I want to learn about the head and shoulders stuff. So I went uh, to my local clicks this morning and I started doing research on shampoo and I took photographs of bottles of head and shoulders and then very quickly realized that, hold on a second, Gary Boyson. He's got a fine head of hair on him, but I don't think that's what he wants to talk about. He's going to be talking about technical analysis. He's going to be talking about how to use charts Mm. in order to do better. In terms uh, let me, let me tell you a story about technical analysis. Okay, go on. I bought a book by Clive Roffey. A long time. The late Clive Roffey? I don't think I read it because I looked at it and my eyes were squint and I thought, okay, thank you. No, I'll, it's, I'll stick to the blog. I'm not going to prejudge. <laughs> no, I, have, I prejudged 20 years ago when he threatened to sue me. Uh, uh, anyway, that, oh, but he can't. Dead men don't sue, so he can't. Uh, anyway, thank you, Victor Homer. The Money Show. Investment School. Tonight's investment school, inspired by one of you who came to us. Who was it? Producers. Somebody sent us an email and said, I want to learn more about technical analysis, the head and shoulders stuff. Uh, And so that gave us enough of a clue as to 
directing us where we needed to go this evening. Technical analysis and the headmaster of the investment school this evening is director at Rand Swiss, Gary Boyson. Now, you've been dabbling in the dark art of technical analysis for most of your career, I suppose. It gets used on trading desks. It gets used everywhere, doesn't it? Yeah, it pretty much gets used on a daily basis everywhere. And it's interesting because there's, there's, a, there's you know, the fundamental analysts versus the technical analysts. And, Explain and, the difference between the two. And, and yeah, there, there seems to be this war, but, but there shouldn't be. And uh, fundamental analysis, obviously looking at the, the mechanics of business, looking at the balance sheet, the income statement, trying to understand what is really going on and then kind of in, in, extrapolating for there where the share price should be. Whereas technical analysis just looks at, you know, essentially price and volume and historical price action. Okay, says, now you're going to slow down just a little bit on this one because basically, uh, basically what technical analysis is looking at is the price of shares, the number of shares that are traded. Are there an extraordinary number of shares trading? Has volume dropped? Is the share price moving up at a higher rate? Is it breaking key what you guys call technical <laughs> levels right technical levels exactly support and resistance levels if you will but uh it's it, it's essentially that it's it's, it's an it's, analysis it's, of graphs it, graphs it's the graphs and it's interesting because all the fundamental analysis analysts at least that say oh you know technical analysis is rubbish i mean how do you how do you even start to consider what a stock is doing if you don't look at the graph of where the stock has been I mean, can, can you, you can look at a graph but if you are a, t a technical analyst and i mean and uh, victor mentioned just before going in the late dr clive roffey um who predicted the boom in gold prices almost perpetually and he's been right twice in both gold booms uh, just wrong in between um and would be if he was here today telling us look i was a genius i forecast this gold price at two thousand dollars an ounce aren't i clever um he didn't forecast that i think the pullback to 300 when gordon brown sold the uh, half of britain's gold reserves to the chinese or whatever it was mm. you can also miss so much when all you do is look at graphs and volumes and trade because for example technical analysis would never have picked up marcus Uster. if you were a good fundamental analyst you would have looked at marcus Uster and questioned perhaps the business model questioned um you know questioned the, the the accounts somewhat if you were a thorough analyst and many analysts did many analysts did and uh, i suppose again you can <laughs> you know the argument for the technical analysts would would say that uh, you can fiddle accounting numbers you can you can create spurious uh, financial reports you can commit fraud uh, but if people know about it if that information in any way is in the public space the price will react to that so if anyone knows that the stock is worth nothing and they start to sell in material volume the stock price will move and that's why a lot of technical analysts will look at the stock price and say it will know things that are publicly available and and it's very easy to draw those signals from that and even predict something like a Steinhoff. I mean, I remember Steinhoff, the stock price was falling before that announcement came out. And if you had looked at the key technical levels on Steinhoff, you know, the day before, it had already started falling. I, re I remember uh, orders triggering on the day and people exiting and, and kind of looking at it and going, well, it's broken key technical levels and getting out literally the day before the thing. Because happened. there was a rumor mill that was working long before the, te the, the fundamental it. analysis could go could make, actually make a phone call so, and say, Marcus, what's going on? So there are arguments both ways. But, but absolutely, to look, at, to look at this in isolation is, is very dangerous. And I mean, I remember years ago, we had a, a technical analyst at a, at a former company that that was you know, very well recognized technical analysis had a technical analyst had uh, market qualifications around it used to predict a lot of Hindenburg omens which also they predict about eight out of the last two market crashes <laughs> and 
and I remember then coming out with a uh, with a short on Kumba at that stage and looking only at the chart, looking at the price action, perfectly picking the pattern that was going to fall, and then announcing to the desk that this is what's going to happen. Everyone looked at it and said, "But there's a giant special dividend coming out. Have you con- have you considered this?" We didn't say anything. Suddenly the stock price collapsed about forty rand because it was the special dividend coming out of the stock, and the analyst sent around a note saying, "Look how clever I am." And we were like, "You haven't made any money. You need to consider other things." As well as charts. <laughs> Absolutely. So Mangaliso asked us a very specific question. I want to know about head and shoulders and stuff. Now, there are lots of different terms and terminologies in the, in the world of technical analysis. One of the terminologies is head and shoulders. And that goes to refer to the shape of a graph that resembles somebody's head and two shoulders. What does it look like in a graph pattern? Because my head and shoulders is a very different head and shoulders to what these guys who look at it and go, well, there's a head and shoulders. And you go, no, it's just a line going squiggle, squiggle, squiggle. <laughs> so we very, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting topic to discuss on a radio station. Yes, because let's just demonstrate just, to you the, the other word for technical analysis, yes. technical analysts is chartists. And yes. we, we're literally talking about a visual, very visual discipline. But uh, as you said, you know, t- uh, head and shoulders form you know, forms part of price pattern recognition. So you get things like head and shoulders, double tops, flag and pennant uh, structures within the charts. And head and shoulders, normally what it means is if you imagine a, a zigzag choc- stock chart moving upwards, um, essentially it, it represents an uptrend. And that means that there's higher highs being made and higher lows being made. What so it's like somebody standing at a 45-degree yeah. angle almost. So yeah. the one shoulder is down and it goes <laughs> to that shoulder, then it goes to a head, and then it goes to and another then high. Suddenly, and, the and then suddenly the the other shoulder, so the, the left shoulder goes up, it makes a high, it comes down and makes you know the, the crevice between the yes. neck, uh, the ne- the next movement in the price is up to make the peak of the head, and then it comes down to make the crevice on the other side of the neck, and then suddenly the other shoulder gets made, and that shoulder is a lower high than the previous high. And so that's it's a warning. So it's of starting a to downturn. say, wait a minute, this this price trend that was moving up and making higher highs and higher highs has suddenly changed. Then what you do is you actually join the two crevices in the neck, and that creates what's called the neckline. And you can actually set a price target on that. It, it's known as a reversal pattern. You know, a flag, for example, which is much easier to explain, which is just a big stock price chart which draw, draws a flagpole, and then a consolidation pattern where the essentially the price just comes off a little bit and draws a little pennant on the end of the flagpole. Um, that that you know target price, you would just take the flagpole, you'd add the flagpole to the pennant, and that gives you a target. In a head and shoulders. <laughs> In a head and shoulders. I mean, you've you been studying this stuff at university. You, you take, you do, you do. It's a very small module, and, and most of it, I think, is studied from uh, from yeah, inter- internet blogs. To be honest, yeah. afterwards. No, because it's a, it's a very practical, real world, minute by minute assessment of billions of trades in billions of companies around the world that are sending a signal, a buy or a sale signal, depending on how you choose to interpret the data. Mm. This is all data-driven analytics. Now, the question I'm going to come back to you with in a moment is whether or not humans are still needed to do technical analysis or whether or not this is something that we simply plug into an AI program and it'll do it Far quicker. What? Uh, yeah, let's get back with that question in a moment. Gary Boyson at Rand Swiss, where he's a director on our investment school this evening. Technical analysis. We've explained head and shoulders. We've explained the flagpole. Oh, my goodness me. What else will we come up with this evening? Maybe a bunny rabbit or maybe a mouse or a rat. Or Isn't there a falling cow or a buffalo? I don't know. There's so many terms in the world of technical analysis. 
This is The Money Show. I'm Bruce Whitfield. With me, Gary Boyson, who is um, the director at Rand Swiss. We're doing technical analysis this evening. Now, Gary, I don't know if this fits into the world of technical analysis, but if you are relying on graphs and the rapid movement of information and the ability to tell a likely price movement before anybody else, and you're able to get in first on either a buy signal or a sell signal, those fractions of cents on millions of shares add up to huge amounts of money. And I think it was a book called Flash Boys, Michael Lewis, probably 20 years ago, telling the story of these traders who basically drilled through a mountain to lay a cable between two points so that they would get data analysis nanoseconds ahead of a cable that went round the mountain or over the mountain or whatever it did. It's that importance of speed and accuracy that will then I suppose, make the difference between those who are more successful or less successful. I think it, it, it is two different different things that we're talking about here. So, so definitely, you know, the, the question before the break around, you know, is is AI going to get rid of technical analysts altogether? Maybe already. You know, for years we've had signal signal recognition programs that would go out and say, you know, there's a head and shoulders on this. They would analyze sixty five thousand securities and come up with, you know, ten thousand head and shoulders for you to go and go and look at if you wanted to. Um, and of course. Yeah, I think, I think technical analysis, you're really looking at it from the point of views. You're trying to make sense of, of something that's very abstract. And, and it's almost, I suppose it's like, it's like, you know, ancient people looking at the stars and, you know, drawing star signs and, and, and trying to make sense of it to help them remember patterns, if you put it that way. Now, when you talk about uh, Michael Lewis and Flash Boys, that, that's kind of the high frequency trading. Uh, it's not so much pattern recognition. Okay. It's, it's really, it's who can get their order to market the fastest. And it, you know, really, uh, if you read the book, it's, it's really about, in that stage, in the U.S., there's, there's multiple exchanges, and it hasn't really been an issue in South Africa for years and years and years because we have the JSE. Now we've got the JSE and the Cape Town Stock Exchange, so maybe this will become more prevalent. But essentially what people wanted to do is, is co-locate their server right next to the exchange so that they could be the first person to place an order. So they don't really care which direction stock is going. As long as they know when you know, Bruce comes to go and buy his you know, 100 MTNs, they know that order is going to land on the market before, you know, before it actually gets placed on the public market. And they can quickly get in ahead of you and put the order just in front of you so that they, they can essentially just front run every trade. It's a, yeah, it's a very, it's a very interesting concept, HFT, but I think it's a, it's a whole nother okay. module in the investment school. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, but, but the patterns are interesting. There, there must be, I think there are four basic principles, are there not, of, tra- of, 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 of technical analysis. What are, what, what would the textbook tell me if I picked it up? Well, I don't know if there's four basic principles. So, so technical analysis, I suppose, was all born from from Charles Dow originally, who was actually the the first editor of the the World's Wall Street Journal and, and the co-founder and, uh, of the Dow Jones and, Industrial and the Index, Dow yeah. Jones Industrial Index, which we still use today, not as much as the S and P 500, but uh, still 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 around. Dow Jones Industrial Average, a big part. It's not yes. an index; it's and, an average. And yes. he, yeah, he he was essentially instrumental in creating something called Dow theory. It wasn't called Dow theory; other people started calling it. But he laid the the foundation for what technical analysis would eventually become and there there were there were six principles that that he followed and i don't think anyone really follows them at the moment but i mean they're definitely key concepts i suppose so one is pattern reg- recognition another one is, is probably uh, oscillators as well you know the likes of macd which is moving average convergence divergence you've got the rsi those are two very very popular ones and essentially what they're giving you they're just tools to help you 
think about when stocks are too expensive and when stocks are too cheap. And, and like I said, you don't use them in isolation, but it sometimes just acts as a warning signal when everyone is telling you to sell. And suddenly you look at your oscillator and it's sitting in a very oversold position. You say, wait a minute. I'm just hearing all this noise telling me that I've got to sell this thing, but the stock price has fallen. This oscillator is now in oversold territory. Maybe I must take a deep breath and, and just think about it. Then you go so, back to the fundamental guys who say, is there any is real there story? Really? Yeah, because this yeah. has moved 20%. And it, it's telling me now that, you know, this is historically based on all the history, historic data. This has never moved 20% down before. What's happening mm. inside the stock that it would warrant the largest move in history? Is this a buying opportunity, for example? And just it gives you that kind of counterbalance, which is quite useful. And then, of course, there's all sorts of trend analysis. There's trend following things. And and back to the, the kind of the algorithm example. Yes, you can identify patterns on this, but for years and years and years, we've had software where we can literally write algorithms to say when you know, a, a short-term moving average crosses a long-term moving average enter a buy signal in the market. And when it reverses, which is essentially the, the end of a trend, then you know, put in the, the opposite and close the position. And you can literally write these little programs very, very simply. I, I, we have retail investors that write this kind of stuff. And you plug the algorithm into the market and you kind of sit back and watch and either your algorithm is good or your algorithm but is bad. But that's the point. And it's suddenly, only as good as data in, data out. Suddenly I mean, you see your account going down and then suddenly you see your account going up, but it's, it's, you're not even placing the manual trades anymore. So there's definitely a space for it, but uh, I think it takes a lot of the fun out of the market. No, well, exactly. David Shapiro, our mutual friend, David Shapiro, everybody's mutual friend, David Shapiro, because he's a lovely man, says the only people who make money from charting are those people who sell books on how to make money from charting. It's not my quote, but I still love it. He says, I still like to refer to charts. I look for the ones where the line goes from the bottom left to the top right. Um, and sometimes it is that simple. And I think the best technical analysis you can do on terms in terms of long-term investing and taking the Buffett approach and the Charlie Munger approach is looking at graphs, you know, from 1900 to the present day, the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500, whenever it started. And generally, the graph is going from the bottom left to the top right with massive oscillations in between. But there is the long-term trend that is the global economy grows as businesses grow, as they become better at what they do and as new and clever ideas come to market and capital is raised to fund those ideas and they make money, the value of markets goes up and up and up over time. You don't need to be a genius to read that graph. No, you don't. And I suppose it's if you're getting greedy and you want a little bit extra. And, and I, that's and where this is about. Isn't that, it? This is about this the is about much, much more shorter term movements that you're talking about. You're looking to try and know when to buy. Because if you've got a big portfolio that you want to deploy, at what point do you pull the trigger? You're moving currency offshore, for example, and you look at the RAND and it's trading at 1870. Is, is now the time? Do I wait 10 cents? Do I just pile into the market. How do you how do you decide in something as abstract as a, as a currency? Do you wait? You can look at the fundamental side. You say, should I wait for you know the, the governor, the Reserve Bank governor to, to speak and maybe get an interest rate hike? Or you can just look at the chart and say, where where has it been? And and, and where the, do the I think Hamas fires rockets into Israel? And Israel <laughs> exactly. Responds, and and, and, and the rest all of the world gets onto tenterhooks. And next thing, the dollar starts but losing I, value. I think, <gasps> I think oh. in the in the absence of information, though, technical analysis can be very useful. And that is is and yes, I agree. You get the analysis paralysis when you get too deep into it it almost it becomes less relevant but if everyone is looking at the same same line and i remember the s&p 500 last year and everyone was looking at this kind of downtrend and it kept on going back and touching the same point on this on this on this you know incline declining line and every time it got to that line it had turned down and it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because every time it gets to the line everyone goes well Ooh. now is the time to sell so everyone starts selling so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and then the stock falls and then 
the moment it breaks through that line significantly, everyone goes, oh, well, the trend has changed. Now we can buy again. And if everyone the, dives in if and everyone buys. If that's the only reason you look at the charts, because, that, I mean, because we, that's the herd, isn't it? That is the herd. And, and you're essentially trading the momentum behind the herd. And if everyone is looking at the same thing, they typically behave in the same way. And that's why the, the, the much simpler technical analysis that you're talking about, just understanding you know, basic support and resistance to kind of go and look for a stock, see that it's in a channel, see where the top of the channel is and the bottom of the channel. You can see it. Anyone can see it. It's a very simple pattern. But when you start getting to very complex things and going, oh, we're going to go and analyze Elliott Wave. And I, mean, I remember a client used to phone me and he was an Elliott Wave theorist. And he said it always was in, in, in Wave 4. And it, it was always characterized by high volatility. And I look, used to look at those charts and say, I can't see where your Elliott Waves are. But he, he, I remember him saying he, he never made money. On, on the more complex technical analysis, but he always did pretty well when he just kept it simple. And, and a lot of it is, as you say, just keep it simple. Look for what everyone else can see because that is something that I do believe works. It, it, it's kind of like the law of round numbers. You know, when, when, every, when you want to buy a stock and let's say the stock is hovering around 31 rand and you're looking for an order, put it on the big round number or, or let's say 105 rand. Go put your order in at 100 because that's where people phone into desks, that's where they go, oh, if it gets to 100, I'll buy. So you typically see orders stacking up at that number. And if you go and look at the volume analysis, which is a technical uh, a technical concept, you'll see the volume is much higher at a round number because people tend to, they don't tend to go, please buy me the stock when it gets to 100 rand and three cents, you know. So one, one I suppose, a little useful tidbit, if you are placing your own orders in the market and you're going to go and buy a stock at 100, put your order in at 103 because you'll be ahead of everyone else that's buying at 100. So there's, there's a little bit of... Uh, free uh, technical trading a free technical trading tip for you too. Well, Gary Boyson, what a generous headmaster of the investment school that he is, director at Rand Swiss.